Welcome to the SG Engage podcast, where it's all social good all the time. Sit back and relax as the brightest minds from across the social good community engage with trends, big ideas, and best practices to help you drive impact. Welcome, everyone. This is Rachel Hutchison. I lead global social responsibility at Blackboard, and I am here today on another episode of the SG Engage podcast with Judy Samuelson. Judy is the executive director of the Aspen Institute Business and Society Program. So welcome, Judy. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So Judy, let's just start with some of the basics. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. As both a founder and the executive director of the Aspen Business and Society Program, I get to work on a topic that I think is you know, an incredibly important one, which is the role of corporations in society and how do we, how do we align the corporation, how do we align business with the long-term health of society? You know, business is granted a license to operate by, by the public and by states. And uh, we need its capacity and its global reach and distribution systems and its remarkable problem-solving skill and talent to solve our most complex problems today. And so that's what, that's what we do. And we're very much about looking at kind of in the system of business about governance and decision-making. That's really where a lot of our work resides, including how we teach business, how we teach in business schools and what's going on in boardrooms and, and staying up on the current trends. So it's a big complex topic, but we work through dialogue and we work through leadership opportunities, fellowship programs and the like. And, um, and work with the change agents who are embedded in, in business to, um, to better ends. Well, I love all of that because I'd like to think that I'm one of those change agents embedded in a business who is working to a better end. Very good way to put it. I'm very passionate about this idea that good is for everyone, that good is not just something that is done by nonprofits who are wonderful, but business can actually do and should do really good things for society as well, beyond the traditional scope of maybe what Milton Friedman was talking about. Yes. So you recently wrote a book, The Six New Rules of Business, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But in your bio, it says that you have led a, quote, 10-year campaign to disrupt Milton Friedman's narrative about corporate purpose. So tell us about that, how it began, what's the journey been like, and let's make sure everyone knows what Milton Friedman's narrative was. Just in case they don't sure. know. It's, uh, you know, you never know. I suppose there could be people. But, you know, Milton Friedman wrote a you know, Chicago school economist. Uh, he kind of built the University of Chicago's kind of orientation to economics. And he wrote an article that appeared in the, in the New York Times Magazine in 1971 that essentially said the business of business is business and don't get distracted. That's, that's what's necessary to succeed over over time. And all of those other things can be addressed by, you know, government and, and other means, but business's aim is to maximize profits. That was essentially the narrative. You know, that's had a, a long tail effect. And uh, we're still, we're still feeling the effects of the Milton Friedman-esque narrative today. So the journey for me, I think in some respects that the, the moment that jumps out when you say, what has this journey been like? Where did it start? Is, you know, not, it was only about a year or two into the founding of the Business and Society Program, which had, had been started to go deep into business education and say, what are we training executives to do? What are they being taught to think? 
what's a mindset? What are they learning in business education? But um, Enron hit, meaning the implosion of Enron, a significant public company that had significant market share and had you know, captured the attention of, of many, uh, including our own organization, was trying to figure out how to work with Enron. It was, a, it was an important brand. And uh, it, the company blew up. And they blew up because they had taken this too far. And I think it started, that moment started to unravel for me some of, the, some of these questions around the mindset. It started pointing me toward what's the orientation of an enterprise? And then, of course, what do the operations reveal about its real orientation? And so it started a round of dialogue that continued for many years that ultimately led us to um, kind of a, a lot of work on short-termism in business and capital markets. And ultimately, it led us to a woman named Lynn Stout, who was then a uh, legal scholar, uh, you know, taught in at UCLA and then at, at Cornell at the law school there, and had uh, crystallized for us kind of what does the law actually say about the purpose of the corporation versus the kind of narrative that rebounds in business school classrooms and law classrooms. Like, in other words, what's actually a law? What's actually allowed? And what what needs to change to make sure that we capture the real capacity of, of business to, you know, for public ends, for, you know, for the license to, to honor the license to, to operate. So that kind of set us off on this question on, on corporate purpose and, and what was, in fact, a 10 year campaign to disrupt this narrative about, a, you know, a single objective function. So I'd like to say single objective functions, whether it's about stock price or customers, rarely ends well. You know, and business people, managers, good managers naturally think in kind of polyglot, multitasking ways. They've got a lot of things that they need to balance. And they know that because they're at the center of an enterprise and enterprises are complicated uh, undertaking. So in order to do very much, to last for very long, you simply have to be balancing the inputs that are critical to the health of the enterprise. And they come in different in, in, you know, they, they, they're different for different kinds of companies, but very few companies would get up in the morning and say, we're really here, you know, just to make money for shareholders. They simply have to be thinking more broadly than that. And so it's been an interesting process that did result, I think, in a very powerful statement by the Business Roundtable that was kind of a restatement of an earlier statement about the corporation's purpose. It essentially brought us back to this more stakeholder view. That's not perfect. We could talk about why I don't like the language of stakeholder. But it is definitely a moment where people are more attuned to getting this balancing act right. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's very obvious in the broad business press that it's a moment and there's lots of conversations that are happening that weren't happening five years ago, kind of in the public realm. So your book, The Six New Rules of Business, Creating Real Value in a Changing World, is wonderful. I've had the chance to read it. So obviously you propose six new rules. So why did we need these rules? And do you want to go into a little bit about what they are? Well, the rules, of course, are really a conceit, as many titles are, for what I have observed as kind of six powerful forces that are changing decision-making inside business in real time. And so that's what I'm writing about. And they are, they're things like the degree to which intangibles today define value. You know, when I went to business school, you know, it was a kind of a bricks and mortar world still. And, uh, you know, we felt okay about trying to measure 
the value of the company by you know, identifying hard assets and measuring them or forecasting cash flows out 20 years in the future and trying to discount it back. None of that is very sensible. It wasn't sensible then, it's a lot less sensible now. And um, you know, we're drawn today to these complex things like trust, culture, again, the license to operate, talent, you know, the, the kind of talent pipeline. Executives worry about these things because in fact they do change the conversation both with investors as well as everybody else. And we need to we need to better understand what really constitutes value. We need to, I've got a rule about the purpose of the corporation. We've already talked about that some, but also how the rules are being set for companies. Um, you know, I write about the fact that today the responsibility of companies is defined way outside the gate of the business. You know, the company doesn't say, well, this is what we're responsible for. They're reacting to myriad forces that exist deep in the supply chain or in communities in which they, they operate. And it's redefining how they think about um, their responsibilities and who they need to respond to, which takes us to employees. You know, I write out a chapter on employees as being the new accountability mechanism in business. It is a much more powerful voice, I believe, than either investors who come in lots of shapes and sizes and have all kinds of conflicting desires, or consumers who tend to rebound to price and convenience. Employees are very aligned with the health of the enterprise itself. They want the same things. They want the company to succeed mightily because that's they're aligned with that in order for their own financial security and for economic opportunity. And so, um, but today the employees are the they're the mediators between the outside and the inside, you know, because due to social media and because the inclination of, of younger employees, although I think boomers like myself always wanted the company to do the right thing too, you know, they are natural mediators between the demands of constituencies that we could name and uh, what's actually going on inside and revert and, and, and kind of mirroring that in their own dialogue and conversation with leaders. And then finally, I think one of the things that's really fascinating today is that financial capital isn't that important to the company anymore. You know, in the tech environment, you know, the, many companies, when they go public, they're not going public to raise money anymore. They're taking out their early investors. A lot of the capital raising happens privately, not in public markets. So it raises questions about why we, why we spend so much time on the noise that comes from public markets and the short-term demands that reverberate in public markets. That's a design question. It's not a necessity. You know, you got your money at the IPO. Very few companies return to the public markets, even if they do use going public as a capital raising moment. So why does this feel so out of balance today? And then finally, I think we exist in an environment where Today, it's about co-creation and collaboration. It's not one company at a time. In a world in which we, there are many crises that it feels that in, you know, avoid the doom scrolling in the morning, you know, to make sure you can work through the day is how it feels to me some days. But you know, to, to solve the most complex problems, we need, we need to bring people together. We need to bring these remarkably powerful institutions that we call business together to collaborate, to go deeper into systems and, and change the norm. Yeah. So when I read your book, it really landed on me in a, in a very powerful way. And, and I love the page you have right at the beginning, which has the six rules and it's the six new rules and the six old rules. And, and I went through the old rules as you state them and I could find myself and what I do as a corporate social responsibility professional in one of them. 
The other ones just were really, you know, very much more scoped around what people consider traditional business. But in your new roles, I can see what I do in all six of them. It's <laughs> it's so interesting. It's like I, you know, whether it's about people or culture, trust, reputation, the co-creation, if there's a thread in every single one of them, which I thought was really wonderful. And having been in the business world for almost 30 years myself, I've seen this shift from feeling like, as I describe, being down the street and around the corner in a little office that, you know, maybe got trotted out when we were just talking about giving and volunteering to something that's really central to the business yeah. and the business strategy. Yeah, I so. totally agree with that. We, we have a network of chief sustainability officers called the Leaders Forum. And um, my colleague, Nancy McGaugh, did a report called the Whitewater Report navigating in turbulent times that is about the role that you play and how this this role has changed. And without a doubt, it's becoming a more strategic role and one that's valued in that in that domain. So you have these six rules, but is, is there one that's more important than the other? Is there a place to start if you're thinking about the rules? How I think we consume them? I think if you're an executive, it may be that the one that really lands is how dynamic this question about employees today is. You know, if you look at some of the moments over the last several years, from the time early in the Trump administration when CEOs kind of found their voice around immigration, that was a result of the employees. They were worried about their own people and they were worried about what they were hearing about the fear that employees had when the when Trump imposed the ban on, you know, visas from seven majority Muslim countries. That worked against the grain, many of whom, of course, these employees, these executives were immigrants themselves. So no surprise, this was in the biotech and tech industry that we heard their voice so resoundingly. But you know, you fast forward in the wake of the of the the you know riot or the insurrection of the Capitol on January 6th, again, when when executives started announcing that they were hitting the pause button on political spending because they would, the company had been outed as saying one thing about the importance of democracy and found that their money could be traced back to um, legislators who were, who were viewed more as agitators in this domain than upholders of democracy. You know, again, that was employees. It was employees that called them to action here. And that will be an interesting chapter that is still ahead of us. When they want to re-enter, when we get close to midterms, and they want to start spending money again, what will the protocols be and what will they be different? And some of them have already said, we're not going to re-enter. We don't think that this is the best use of our time and energy is to try to direct campaigns. So I think it's an interesting time. You, you go back to the incredible moment of the Me Too moment. All of these things have been employee. They've been built into the DNA of how employees network with one another. I could go on and on about that. I think it's a real and important piece of this puzzle today. Yeah, for sure. It's it's interesting. Even in my own career, I've seen us go from having a hiring department to a recruiting department to a talent acquisition department to departments that are really all about people, culture, and engagement. You know, our people walk in the door every day bringing their whole selves and wanting us to care and not, you know, leaving it in their cars the way we used to, you know, when I started in business. You know, there, there's one more thing about that that I think is really interesting is that a lot of, you know, the examples often come out of, of employee engagement, employee voice, employee power come out of, you know, Silicon Valley or technology and the like. But I think one of the things that's interesting is that in some of these employee movements, they've also been signaling kind of a connectivity between the employees of record and the, you know, the, the engineers up front 
and the legions of contract workers that the employees on the inside know who they are, they know what they do, they know that they often have the same job but are on the other side of a cubicle without job security and benefits or even a job that lasts 12 months a year. And so I think that's an interesting connection because it's one of those blind spots in business that um, we need a reckoning. You can't be talking about the purpose of the corporation and how important your employees are at the same time that you're continuing to contract out work and take people away from the opportunities that exist for real employees. So I think that's there's a bunch of those kinds of moments of reckoning that I think are happening in, in real time now. Yeah, you called it the orientation of the enterprise versus the real orientation of the enterprise, which I thought was interesting, like what, what you say and then what you actually do. Yes. across all of these different functions. And yes. many people are still on a journey in business figuring out that they do, oh, that, that that actually, this actually has something to do with me and my function, not just that was supposed to be handled by that group over there. Absolutely. Um, That's true. Yes. So do you have some examples of companies that you think are already embracing these new rules well, who we could look to? I don't think there's any, I think everybody's on the journey, to be honest. I mean, I certainly write about companies that I think kind of, you know, emblemize the, you know, illustrate aspects of these questions, some of which have had to go through a radical change. I talk about Nike and its kind of wake up call in the, in the 70s and 80s around uh, needing to better mine their supply chain to make sure that they were aligned with their brand and that they were, they were um, deploying and working through the supply chain to, you know, rid it of human rights problems or labor abuses. Um, that kind of wake-up call happens because it's a well-orchestrated campaign usually brought to bear on a brand. But when a company like Nike takes something like that seriously, it reverberates through the industry. I write about Levi Strauss, which I think is one of those companies because of its family legacy is tended to be ahead of the curve on things. I write about Southwest, which gets this employee piece, not to some, you know, silly end, but because, of course, employees in an airline are critical to everything from an on-time record to whether or not people actually have a good time when they're flying, you know, so, you know, that, that kind of thing. I write about Herman Miller, which I think had wrote into their DNA as they transferred from being an old furniture, you know, a retailer to a, a company that designed furniture. They embedded design, and when you embed design and the principles of design into what matters in the company, you, you value the designer. And so it's a short walk from there to the fact that decades later, uh, Herman Miller became one of the first companies that, that designed for sustainability. And that was a natural outcome of a company that valued the designer. And those designers started seeing things that others might not see as easily. So I think there's a lot of examples of that, but I think I, I really do think that this is a, I think all companies create value. Um, you know, we, we should not treat this like a cartoon that business is good or bad. You know, business is just, a, you know, the business is not is not moral in and of itself. You know, it, it does. It, it, the consequence of decisions have have, uh, you know, impacts that are maybe immoral. But the business is is a you know, we create business and give them the license to operate to solve problems, do things you can't do yourself, you know, where you need to amass resources and talent and and bring it together to do something important. And so, you know, I think everybody's on a journey and we need to support those. It's not an easy endeavor. Yeah, I use that word a lot, 
you know, it's a journey, whether we're talking about ESG reporting, et cetera, it's a journey. Like everything we do is getting us one, you know, step further out and we're learning more by doing it. And then we have to step back and assess and then we do more. And it's just this constant evolution that is not going to end in my mind. And sustainability is not an end game either. You know, it's a mindset. Mm -hmm. You're never there. You know, it's constantly shifting. Well, the more you do, the more you learn. And then the more you learn about what you should do next. So what advice do you have for leaders who really don't understand yet that change is needed? And we still have, we have some of those out there. Do they still have their jobs? You know, I, I think that, I think we're seeing a generational shift. You know, I'm not, you know, we worked a lot in business schools and we used to say, we're not trying to reach either the ethics faculty or those who, you know, the dinosaurs who have no interest in, in, uh, connecting the dots, you know, you work with the movable middle, you work with, you work with those who are leaning into the change and that's where the power is. So, you know, honestly, I would discount those who really think that change is not needed. We simply, you know, look at, there's, there's a, a lot of data out there on trust in business, you know, through Edelman and uh, mm-hmm. through their trust survey. And uh, I, it kinda, I kind of laugh when I see these recent headlines that say business is now the most trusted institution yeah, by a hair, and it's not that high a percentage. I mean, we, we, we do have a crisis, and we do need to be thoughtful about how to deploy the massive and important skills and capacities of the business sector. And I think, I think business people, I'd lo- I think they would love to design their companies for purpose. I think that many people drawn to business are trying, they're, they're there because they want to do things, things of use. And, um, you know, let's lean into this moment. Yeah, the doing of it is is hard. It's complicated. So where do people go if they want to learn more about the six rules or they want to get a copy of your book? Um, is there a website they can jump on? Sure, absolutely. There's a, the website for the book is my name, judysamuelson.com. Uh, you can find the book wherever it's sold online um, and uh, can order it you know, in a bookstore and uh, or occasionally find one in a bookstore, I think. But yeah, it's it's available virtually anywhere. So and our and the work of the business and society program is it's a close map with with this book. You know, we work with change agents in business. We work in business education. We're we're about aligning business decision making with the long term health of the commons. And that work can be found at uh, the Aspen Institute's website, but more directly, Aspen BSP, Business Society Program, aspenbsp.org. Well, Judy, thank you so much. I do recommend this book. I think it's great. I think it's it's helpful for people who aren't in you know finance or those parts of the business to actually really see the important parts that they play in an, in an enterprise more than ever before. So I want to thank you for joining me on the SG Engage podcast. And to those of you who are out there listening, I hope you've enjoyed our conversation. And I uh, invite you to listen to other episodes wherever you consume your podcast. So again, thank you so much, Judy, for being here with us. Thanks, Rachel. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So to our listening audience, audience, this is Rachel Hutchison signing off.